the tradition with the Orlando Insight Meditation Group that when someone's had a significant retreat experience, the meeting afterwards is dedicated to providing the opportunity for that person to think out loud about their experience. I've said this, you know, why this is important before, but it's, it's worth repeating. Um, a lot of what happens on a retreat is not really fully integrated. It's, it's sort of uh, bouncing around in your subconscious. And I know from all my years as a psychotherapist that when we talk about those issues that are um, in the unconscious or semi-conscious, simply searching around in the brain and deciding to put words to it starts to connect the dots and make the experience more integrated and more accessible um, going forward. Uh, Plus, when someone talks about their retreat experience, that also can be informative and hopefully inspiring for those folks who were not on the retreat. So um, I have been doing a self-retreat here in this building the last two weeks of every year for the last 15 years. That's uh, my way of celebrating the turn of the seasons, the start of the new year, which for me is April 21st, not January 1st. So I look forward to these retreats for months in advance and uh, they're very meaningful for me. Typically I will meditate uh, about 12 hours a day, alternating sitting on a cushion where I'm sitting now and in a recliner in the front room, um, basically two hours in each posting. I've had trouble with my hip in the last year or so, so I reduced the time on the cushion to an hour um, when I'm sitting at home, but I was able to sit for two hours on the cushion uh, during the retreat, which is very promising, hopeful. Uh, Plus, I was doing some Hatha Yoga exercises that I think uh, helped uh, work that area out. So I would get up at um, just before 4 o'clock and sit until breakfast and have a breakfast and then go for a walk and then uh, um, start sitting and I come back and I sit on the recliner and then come sit on the uh, cushion alternating back and forth till around noon and eat lunch and then resume that routine, uh, recliner and cushion until after 10 at night and then you know repeat the procedure the next day. I also pick this time of year because it's generally a pretty mild time. It's not really hot. It's not really cold. However, this year we had this winter storm named Elliot that pretty much swept across the whole North American continent and created a freeze here. And I knew that there was a potential for the freeze before the retreat started. And um, that was um, compromising my attempts to settle into my normal diving deeper into uh, samadhi. So there was, uh, shall I say, a significant amount of contemplation because we have this lovely backyard full of fruit trees and flowering plants, many of which are tropical or subtropical and are vulnerable to freeze. So I spent a significant amount of time, not the, not the preponderance of the time, <clears throat> you know, I started the retreat on the 16th and of course the retreat hit right over Christmas. So I had several days uh, at the beginning of the retreat to kind of settle in as best I could. But there were times when (coughs) my uh, focus would be on contemplating the best strategies for protecting my plants, particularly my mangoes, which because it's been so abnormally warm for the rest of this winter, are already blooming. So I came up with a clever concoction. And in the middle of the retreat, like uh, I think Christmas Eve, 
uh, my wife and I spent several hours uh, arranging our collection of sheets, which we've had for years, around the yard, uh, covering the various plants. And um, then I went back to my sitting. So I would sit for a couple hours in the morning, then work uh, just before lunch and then after lunch, and then be able to sit in the evening. That just obviously was not the same. There wasn't that continuity. And I was uh, bringing mindfulness into the experience mostly in terms of being patient with the process, not getting too panicky. Although there was an exchange between Paula and I that was a little testy. I think we were both kind of uh, on edge. And one of the things that happens on a retreat, at the beginning of the retreat particularly, when you go deeper into your practice uh, towards samadhi, there's a sensitivity, uh, a kind of uh, a vulnerability to being overstimulated by a situation, either something that's uh, pleasant or something that's unpleasant. In this case, it was something that was unpleasant. And so we had this little dust off, um, but then that, you know, settled itself out. And... Um, took care of business in terms of covering the plants. And then after the freeze, we had to uncover the plants. That took less time, but it still was, you know, a, a disruption in the practice. So I had probably five days after the freeze to uh, resume my practice. And I had some good sittings, but I did not have the continuity that I... Um, look forward to. Um, one of the things that's valuable about being on a retreat is you get into a, uh, a routine, a groove that just builds and builds and builds and you go deeper and deeper and it's more and more peaceful and more and more clear. And I got a few sittings like that before the retreat, uh, a few more after the retreat, but not the kind of uh, development of deep samadhi and uh, vipassana that I was anticipating. So, at the end of the retreat, I was thinking to myself, okay, you know, you can say the retreat has mixed reviews. It was, you know, uh, not what you hoped for. What are you going to talk about? And then I thought, talked about viparanama dukkha. And so, that's what I decided I wanted to talk about. It's dukkha. Understanding dukkha. Uh, my original title was Working with Dukkha, but then I realized that I didn't really talk about that. Uh, I, th I write that down in my notes. I didn't cover that. So I'm just, uh, d just describing the characteristics of, of dukkha. So that's, that's the, the topic for this um, discussion. The other thing I want to say is that I did have a copy of Shyla Catherine's Beyond Distraction um, with me, her latest book, and I would read that. I tend to read informative or inspirational books when I eat, uh, and so that was the book that I was reading, and it was very helpful because I was contending with distraction. So... I want to talk about dukkha, the, the concept of dukkha, um, the characteristics, the experience of dukkha from a traditional perspective, and then talk about it from a more contemporary psychological, uh, neurological uh, understanding. And some of this is repetitive, but um, I think it's also useful, and I know it's useful for me, uh, to review certain conceptual uh, issues over and over again because that's how we learn and that's one of the reasons I value being a teacher is that every time I prepare a talk and I have, I've talked about Dukkha many times I've talked about the Dharma um, Satipatthana Sutta and the Four Foundations of Mindfulness of Loving Kindness and Compassion uh, repeatedly over the 
30 years that I've been teaching. But every time I talk about it, it goes a little bit deeper and a little bit broader and a little more clear in my understanding conceptually. That still does not deny need for me to actually put it into practice. Um, and, and that, I think, is an important thing to understand about doing, working the path, walking the path uh, toward awakening, is that it is important to study the concepts and equally important to practice them, put them into play, to be mindful and investigate what goes on in the selfing process and find a way to work through that. So I hope that you'll uh, have that same kind of curiosity, that same openness uh, to this topic of dukkha, which is a core aspect of all Buddhist te teachings. It's why the Buddha... Uh, left his home because of the problems of dukkha and that's what he was his task was his mission was to understand the cause of dukkha and uh, bring some resolution to it the ultimate resolution which is realizing the unconditioned and then um, creating a community of people that were going to uh, work through this um, for themselves this was you know, the start of uh, what we now call uh, Buddhism. Um, so, the uh, description of dukkha goes like this, in, as, as the first of the Four Noble Truths. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, illness is dukkha, death is dukkha. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. Associating with the unbeloved is dukkha. Separation from the loved is dukkha. Not getting what is wanted is dukkha. In conclusion, the five aggregates are uh, clinging are dukkha. So the word dukkha um, is typically translated as suffering, <clears throat> and that's certainly a valid understanding. And it's reflected in these comments. And there's some other quotes later on that I'll be uh, sharing with you. Uh, my preference is to use the terms distress and confusion. And I'll be talking more about that later on. And I think that distress and confusion is a more contemporary understanding and uh, more workable for our generation. Each generation has a responsibility to study the original teachings and the subsequent commentaries and then validate them through your own experience. And that's one of the things that the, uh, the Buddha emphasized himself, um, that we should uh, validate what we hear from a teacher, even though the teacher may seem um, to have really achieved something important spiritually to make it your own, make your own understanding. So we have this generational, personal and generational obligation in that regard. And so that's why I want to uh, create different terminology for uh, these concepts that are, I think, more workable. Um, so the origins of the term dukkha uh, is important. Here's a quote from uh, Wikipedia about the etymology of the word dukkha. The ancient Aryans who brought the uh, Sanskrit language to India were a nomadic horse and cattle breeding people who traveled in horse or ox-drawn vehicles. Su and dus are prefixes indicating good or bad. The word ka in later Sanskrit meaning sky, ether, or space, was originally the word for hole, particularly an axle hole of one of the Aryan vehicles. Thus, sukha meant originally having a good axle hole, while dukkha meant having a poor axle hole, leading to discomfort. Joseph Goldstein, American Vipassana teacher and writer, explains the etymology in this way. 
The word dukkha is made up of the words prefix du and the root ka. Du means bad or difficult. Ka means empty. Empty here refers to several things, some specific, others more general. One of the very specific meanings refers to the empty axle hole of a wheel. If the axle fits badly into the center hole, we get a very bumpy ride. This is a good analogy for our ride through samsara. Now, I would add to that, not only do we get a very bumpy ride, but the wheel falls off the axle every now and then. And that, my friends, is Viparanamadukkha. I'll be talking more about that in a few minutes. However, going forward with this quote, according to Monier, Monier Williams, the actual roots of the Pali term dukkha appear to be Sanskrit, dus, bad, and sta, to stand. Regular phonological changes in the development of Sanskrit into the various Prakrits, which are the dialects of, of that part of the world, led to a shift from dusta to dukkha. Analio concurs, stating that dukkha is derived from dusta, standing badly, conveys nuances of uneasiness or being uncomfortable. Now, I personally um, agree with the first rendering, mostly because I think it really works. Uh, that's my understanding of it. You know, we have all these ideals, uh, identities for ourselves and how the world is supposed to be. And, you know, more often than not, there's a good enough fit so that we can move forward with our lives. But also, we can't be quite sure it's going to turn out the way we hope. And quite often it doesn't. And so that's dukkha. So, um, In, further on in this Wikipedia article about dukkha, uh, a commentator describes differing understandings of uh, the term uh, compared to the Hindu Brahmin uh, rendering of dukkha. Hinduism em emphasizes the understanding and acceptance of Atman, the self or soul, and Brahman, the ultimate reality of the universe. Connection is the distress and suffering caused by an individual situation uh, that can counter a person's wishes and perceptions. Dukkha, in particular, refers to the sense of disappointing feelings that come from the gulf between the perception and desires and true experience. In Hindi, dukkha generally means difficult to do or to have hardship in doing as it is inflexible. By contrast, Buddhism emphasizes the understanding and acceptance of anatta, which in Sanskrit is anatman, non-self, non-soul, that means to liberation from dukkha. The root meaning of dukkha is used in various ways in different schools of Indian thought and Buddhism. So let me, let me reflect on that for a minute. The idea with the, the uh, Hindu uh, Brahmin approach is that um, we are separated from incomplete versions of Brahma. And uh, that separate separation is Atman, self or soul. In uh, the cycle of uh, birth and death, rebirth, means that we leave you know, our, our sense of self that's karmically loaded uh, leaves uh, Brahman and individuates if you will and is supposed to follow a particular set routine that um, is prescribed by uh, Brahman and interpreted by Brahman priests and when we can uh, when we are uh, in congruence with that, our actions, our karma matches this um, fairly uh, rigid doctrine, then the rebirth, or the, when, when one dies, the rebirth is, uh, turns out to be beneficial. You kind of move up the rung of the ladder toward complete 
realization of Brahma. Uh, the Buddha changed this. The Buddhism talks about the absence of an enduring self. That there is no Brahman, or if even if there was some kind of ultimate being, focusing on that does not bring relief from dukkha, does not liberate one's life experience from distress and confusion. Uh, people would ask him about the issue of um, where we come from before we're born and what happens after we die. And he would repeatedly refuse to discuss that. He basically was saying, you know, what you really need to understand is that there is no such thing as an enduring self and that uh, your subjective reality is transient in nature. And when we don't understand that, we experience dukkha because of craving and clinging. Craving um, the ongoing coherence of a self that's fabricated. It's not inherently real. And uh, clinging to that notion. And that's what creates dukkha. It's not separation from Brahma. I want, I'm going to say again clearly, this does not mean that there's no such thing as Brahman. It just means that the more one focuses on that kind of approach to liberation, you're kind of missing the point. All right. Now I'm going to shift to um, three different understandings of the dukkha concept. This is traditional, and I think it's useful, workable. And here's another quote from Wikipedia. Same article. First there is dukkha-dukkha. Aversion to physical suffering. This includes the physical and mental sufferings of birth, aging, illness, dying, distress due to what is not desirable. The Paranama Dukkha, the frustration of disappearing happiness. This is the Dukkha of pleasant or happy experiences changing to unpleasant when the causes and conditions that produce this pleasant experience cease. Now, the prefix, one of the prefixes was sup, uh, in the original quote about dukkha. Sup is the root word for sukha, and sukha is a pleasant experience, pleasure. That's one of the uh, mind conditioning factors, one of the uh, chitasakas. So, um, the uh, transition of, from, from sukha to dukkha is what Viparanama Dukkha talks about in the traditional sense, but I have a slightly different focus on it. Not invalidating, but once again, I think it would be useful to work with this different kind of understanding. And the third um, understanding of Dukkha is Sankara Dukkha, the unsatisfactoriness of changing and impermanent things. The things is in quote in quotes in this uh, extract that I've downloaded. The incapability of conditioned things to give us lasting happiness. This includes a basic unsatisfactoriness pervading all existence, all forms of life, because all forms of life are changing, impermanent, and without any inner core of substance. On this level, the term indicates a lack of lasting satisfaction or a sense that things never measure up to our expectations or standards. So this is what I downloaded from Wikipedia. Now I'm going to revisit these um, slightly different um, description. First is Dukkha Dukkha. This is the sensory world of embodied experience. We're all vulnerable when you buy a body, dukkha dukkha comes with the package. You know, Buddha never said that dukkha dukkha can be eradicated. Um, but it can be understood, and that's what the gist of this uh, concept is about, is understanding the characteristics of it. To be able to recognize the characteristics. 
and work with them. So uh, these characteristics are physical pain, illness, being hungry, being thirsty, being tired, being too cold or too hot. Um, that's what we're talking about with Dukkha Dukkha. Back in the time of the Buddha, and in fact up until you know, relatively recent times, I mean, just in my lifetime, I know that if I had been born 30 years sooner than I was, I would probably not be alive today. Because the, the uh, advancement of medicine, of understanding how the body works and how disease occurs and how to intervene has been so advanced in the course of my lifetime that uh, I'm in much uh, better condition than any of my forebears. Uh, and uh, so we have all these interventions, but you know what? I still have arthritis. You know, I still have aches and pains. I still have allergy problems. Um, I still get hungry. I still get tired. And my body is not in the same kind of shape that it was in when I was a younger man. Uh, I don't have as much stamina. I don't have as much flexibility, as much strength. But I'm working on it. You know, um, one of the things that I tell people, I, I'm retired now from my profession as a psychotherapist, but I've not retired from my real profession, which is that of being a professional human being. And so now my job is not so much um, helping other people with their mental health, although being a Dharma teacher certainly falls into that realm, and I'm still fully on board with that. But what I tell people is, my job now is to take care of my body, because my body needs a lot more attention than it used to. So I try to do that with you know mindfulness and to be well-informed. I do a lot of reading on nutrition and uh, what you can do to take care of your body, uh, physical fitness, uh, meditation, uh, good relationships, um, setting priorities in terms of lifestyle choices, all of those things. Those are things that I can do actively to address Dukkha Dukkha. And um, I'm fully on board with that. And I think that my uh, mindfulness practice facilitates that. Plan it facilitates the ability to be disciplined in terms of um, diet and exercise and so forth and so on. So, now I mentioned that you know, this this body is not as resilient or or um, strong or enduring uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, stamina as when I was younger. That my friends, is Viparanama Dukkha. So, I think that the term is better understood and worked with psychologically when we talk about in terms of the unpredictability of life, the uncertainty of life. We experience distress and confusion because when we're not wise, when we're not... Uh, cultivating wisdom in the kind of classic Buddhist sense, we're confronted with certain expectations that we create. For example, looking forward to this retreat. You know, I, I am so blessed to have this building. So blessed I can come back here. I don't have to travel, you know, up to Massachusetts or someplace else at great expense and with, you know, a lot of inconvenience to go on retreats. I can just move into my backyard. What a gift. And so I, I cherish this gift and looking forward to, you know, making best use of it. But damn it, this freeze came in. Viparanamadukkha. And, you know, in reflecting back on that, I was talking with my wife, you know, the retreat, this retreat ended on the... Uh, 29th 
30th, I don't remember exactly, it was the last Friday of the year. And days later, I realized that on the 31st, which this year was a Saturday, on the 31st, five years ago, we took our ailing dog, Jana, some of you remember Jana, lovely dog, to the veterinarian and they ended her life on New Year's Eve, five years ago. And so I knew going into that retreat five years ago that my dog's days on the planet were not um, for long, right? So that was Viparnamadukkha, right? My happiness with this dog was sliding down and down and down because, you know, she, she had uh, cancer. And that's what killed her. She was 12 years old. It was her time. But it was still pretty sad. Um, so, Vipar um, Namadukkha, we had these expectations, these ideals. You know, I mentioned having this little quarrel with my wife while we were working on setting up the uh, sheets to protect our plants. I have expectations that I'm going to be a master of equanimity and tranquility and clarity. And so is my wife when we do these chores, right? And guess what? It didn't happen. Viparanamadukkha. And so I could either be ashamed of that or I could be aware that this is Sankaradukkha. You know, Viparanamadukkha is in a, in a way a subset of, of uh, Sankaradukkha. So let me, let me talk about Sankaradukkha. Once again, I'm going to uh, read off a quote from the same article, no, a different article in Wikipedia about Sankara. Sankara is a complex concept with no single word English translation that fuses object and subject as interdependent parts of each human's consciousness and epistemological process. Epistemological means meaning-making. It connotes impression, disposition, conditioning, forming, perfecting in one's mind, influencing one's sensory and conceptual faculty, as well as any preparation or sacrament that impresses, disposes, influences, or conditions how one thinks, conceives, or feels. In the first passive sense, Sankar refers to conditioned things, or dispositions, or mental imprints. All aggregates in the world, physical or mental concomitants, and all phenomena, state early Buddhist texts, are conditioned things. It can refer to any compound form in the universe, whether it's a tree, or a cloud, or a human being. A thought, or a molecule. All these are sankaras, as well as everything that is physical and visible in the phenomenal world, are conditioned things or aggregates of mental conditions. The Buddha taught that all sankaras are impermanent and essenceless. This sub these subjective dispositions, states David Kalupahana, prevented the Buddha from attempting to formulate an ultimately objective view of the world. Since conditioned things and dispositions are perceptions and do not have real essence, they are not reliable sources of pleasure and they are impermanent. Understanding the significance of this reality is wisdom. This conditioned things sense of the word sankara appears in Four Noble Truths and in Buddhist theory of dependent origination. That is, how ignorance or misconceptions about impermanence and non-self leads to tanha and rebirths. Now the word tanha is basically thirst. Now we'll be talking more about that in a few minutes, but let me, let me go back and make some uh, comments about this quote. We understand a lot more now about the physical universe. You know, we have this incredible web telescope now that can see further and further out into the universe and back and back in time, further and further back in time. And 
Um, that's just amazing. It's beautiful. The images that they're I'm seeing on the internet are incredibly beautiful. But even that, from that distance, interstellar space, there's still interactions between stars in different galaxies. In other words, there are stars in the uh, Milky Way galaxy. Because they're there, we're different. If they weren't there, we would be different. That's the basic premise of interdependence. Uh, and uh, the same thing is true of the way our bodies are, are made up. You know, we all have obviously recognizable limits, we call them, to our bodies, we call it skin. Um, and we tend to think of skin as, you know, something solid. But the closer and closer you look at it, the more and more it, its coherence tends to dissipate. And the skin is flaking off all the time. When you sit in the same room with someone for extended periods of time, you're literally breathing part of their body. It's inevitable. Um, and gases are passing from out of the body into the body and from in the body out into the atmosphere all the time. So if you look at the body close enough, the boundary between the body and the rest of the universe is literally on an atomic level. Of course, we know atomic level is variable itself. So there was no way this could be known in the, in the time of the Buddha. So what he was focused on was subjective reality, our subjective experience. Uh, let me let me be more specific about this. Um, thinking is a product of the brain, just like breathing is a product of the lungs. Uh, blood is a, a product of the marrow of the bones. So, um, thinking the process of thinking is real. What we think is conditional. And that's a very key concept to understand in terms of Buddhism, but also in terms of Dukkha. Sankara, when it is a disposition, is like a noun. There's meaning there stored away, just like water is energy stored away behind a dam. When you activate certain neural pathways, thinking is produced. Thinking is not a thing. Thinking is a process. So when that happens, the same term, sankara, applies. So sankara, in a sense, changes from being a noun to being a verb. It, it is. Sankara functions in ways that are synonymous with karma. And the meaning of karma, what karma means is, is action. Um, the transition from stability to transformation, to transition. That's what karma is. So, sankara is a very, very important term in Buddhism. It's a brilliant, brilliant uh, concept that was thought up by these people thousands of years ago. I'm just so much in awe of the brilliance of that. And, you know, even if there isn't such a thing as nirvana, that somebody could go deeply enough into how the selfing process operates to tease that out and see it with such clarity, I'm with it. I'm on board. I want to do that too. <laughs> you know, it's way cool as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so, that brings uh, us to talking about <clears throat> well first let me say that's the first noble truth those those uh, renderings manifestations of dukkha 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 viparanama dukkha and sankara dukkha um, that's the first noble truth now when I say noble the Buddha repurposed terminology 
um, in his uh, teachings. Nobility, when he was born, meant you were born into a particular clan that was exalted, like the Brahmins or the Kshatriya, which was the clan that he came from. And uh, uh, so that you were born noble. This goes back to the notion of Brahman. You couldn't change that you were born Brahman unless you behaved in ways that were not in accord with the way Brahmins were supposed to behave karmically. There are certain rules you're supposed to follow. And if you didn't follow those rules, that was unfortunate or unwholesome karma. And the next time you were born, you might not be born Brahmin. Uh, he changed that. He, he, the word noble um, uh, was changed more like ennobling. And I think that that's uh, a very useful way to understand this, that your choices is what advances your career toward awakening or away from awakening. Your choices, your karma, and your karma is something that is fabricated back to Sankara Dukkha. You know, your karma is kind of hardwired in when you're in the Brahmanic uh, samsara cycle. But in the Buddhist cycle, it's not. It's, it's malleable. It can be reorganized in ways that are trending toward awakening. So, um, this fabrication process is dynamic. What I mean by that is that it is transitory. This is what anicca is about. You know, anatta is the absence of an enduring autonomous self. Anicca is the transitional or transitory nature of subjective experience. Now, once again, if we go to the atomic level, everything's changing, for sure. Whether we're talking about the changing of the skin or changing of the concrete in the floor of this building, you know, it's changing. It's just changing at a much slower rate with the concrete than it is with our bodies. But what the Buddha was really talking about was subjective change. The sense of self is an aggregation. It's a clumping together of various functions that are very transitory. And our, part of our task is to be able to observe this anicca in action at more and more, at deeper and deeper and more and more profound levels. This is one of my expectations, one of my goals, aspirations going into this retreat was to really explore anicca. But your mind has to be very, very attuned, very stable in its the flow of experience. Stable doesn't mean stationary. It means that because the mind is not being jerked around by craving and clinging, you're able to notice this arising, passing away with much more clarity and much less attachment, much less identification. So... Um, this brings us to craving and clinging, which is the second noble truth. The cause of dukkha is craving and clinging. So I want to talk about craving and clinging. And once again, I've talked about this many, many times, but it's that important because it's the second noble truth. And our task is to try to understand it. And when I, when I just explained um, this, the concept of anatta and anicca, um, there was a slightly different terminology that I used that somehow or other clicked things a little bit differently into my psyche. A slightly different understanding because I thought about it, I studied it, and I'm saying it. And even though I'm saying it kind of, in a sense, extemporaneously, I'm working from notes, and those notes come from my studies. But pulling those words together, it's trying to speak in ways that are coherent and, and insightful, deepens my understanding of the Dharma. And that's uh, one of the reasons why I value teaching so highly. So, back to the topic at hand. 
craving and clinging. The word, the Pali word for craving is tanha. Uh, tanha is thirst. In fact, it's an unquenchable thirst. Now, normally, what we understand is thirst. It's, it's dukkha dukkha. Once again, he's talking about subjective thirst. What that means is that um, if you're thirsty and you drink water, the signaling system in your, in your brain, in your body, is affected by that and you stop being thirsty. Right? You're, you're satisfied. Uh, what the, we're talking about with this kind of craving is a subjective craving. Now, that can be layered on top of a physiological craving, you know, like uh, being thirsty. If, if the liquid that you drink doesn't just have water in it, but has alcohol as well, what happens is after a while, you keep drinking, whether you're not thirsty, whether your thirst is quenched or not, because the alcohol is... is uh, um, Tone tuning into your your dukkha, your sankara dukkha, your your unhappiness about your life experience. You know what? Uh, when I work with people who are uh, part of the twelve step system, I tell them, you know, your ticket in the door to a, an AA meeting is your desire to not become intoxicated anymore. But what you're really there to do is cultivate more and more serenity in your life. So when I say what you're there to really do, cultivate serenity, that's we're talking about the sankara dukkha, the psychological thirst. Um, the other term is clinging, and the Pali term for that is upadana. And that is typically translated as fuel or sustenance. Now, once again, this is another term that the Buddha repurposed. And the Brahmin priests had sacred fuel that they would put on the sacred fires. And one of their um, tasks, their priestly task, was to make sure that certain sacred fires were maintained indefinitely. And I imagine that there are fires in India today that have been burning for hundreds, if not thousands of years, because that's the way it works. Um, but when he was talking about, it's not the fuel, it's not some kind of wood or whatever, it's um, for validation of a self. You know, one of the things that I discover on a retreat is that my mind will be kind of settled, but in the background, there'll be this little commentary running on. And my assumption is, and this is actually now I've discovered, that this is called the default mode network in the brain. It's running all the time. Um, Chula Dasa in his book, uh, The Mind Illuminated, he talks about sub-minds, and this is what one of the sub-minds. Um, and I think that part of the reason why this is running and we get pulled into it, I mean, it's, it, it, the brain is doing what it does. It's, it's creating some kind of um, signal that we are calling thinking. And we identify with the terminology, if you will, the words. And therefore, we have a self. You know, uh, we talk about uh, uh, Descartes. The, the, the French philosopher coming up with this phrase, I think, therefore I am, and that's considered to be the onset of the Age of Enlightenment, philosophically. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. I, the way it's described is that he said that um, thinking is what we are. We are thinking beings, and this is where the whole notion of the Age of Enlightenment comes into being. Um, but I like to think of it from a Buddhist perspective. 
the process of thinking, when we identify with that through craving and clinging, that creates an I am. That creates a me, an ego that must be defended or gratified. So clinging is that kind of enchantment. Now, I could dive deeper into that, because that would be the, the uh, third and fourth noble truth, but I'm not going to do that um, with this talk, because uh, I would really get off in the weeds with that. But let me just, just say this, that part of what we want to do with this process of awakening, the overcoming of dukkha, is to be able to be clearly aware, this is wisdom, to be clearly aware of the feeling of urgency that we all experience, the, the thirst regarding being hungry, being in pain, being tired, so forth and so on to be able to identify it as a phenomenon of nature and also to be able to understand from a, a kind of a, um, a stepped back position, a position of equanimous observation. Uh, viraga is a term in Pali, dispassion. Observe that stream of thinking as the, the default mode network as also a phenomenon of nature. It's characteristically human. It's a wonderful, mysterious, magical phenomenon, but it is not a self. And the more we can realize that, the more sukha we can experience. But the sukha comes from clarity and dispassion rather than always getting what we want always having the world be a certain way because that's the way we want it to be. So, that's what I have to say about Dukkha. Now we have the opportunity for uh, comments, questions, um, insights, observations, either from somebody here in the room or somebody on... Uh, out in the internet world. Questions, comments? I have a quick question. All right, David. On, um, you said, Speak up uh, to make sure that everybody can hear you. Okay, the, um, yeah, I can't remember the terminology, specific terminology, but you said we're being aware of the arising and then going away. Uh, what was it you were referring to? Like Sankara. Sankara. Just kind of wondering how what that means, like uh, the the uh, like you're seeing like like a like a craving, like a I don't know, I want a bowl of ice cream, but you know, I want more money. Anything could be considered the arising of a, of a want, and then not really. Yeah, that's then, tanha. That that's the wanting is tanha. Okay, tanha. Okay. Mm -hmm. And. I don't know what I was trying to... I just wanted to just try to clarify it a little bit. Well, you're, doing the, you're okay. on the right track. Think out loud. Ask the question. This is one of the reasons why I like having the questions and comments because it helps you connect the dots in your own mind. Right. And, and so, you know, you're, you're saying that, you know, as a being, being aware of these cravings and cleans, so the, the, need, the want or the need, something arises... And then it just goes away. Forgot what it was. Mm -hmm. But for a moment, it seemed important. Mm -hmm. It seemed like something I might want. But then a few minutes later, I can't remember what I was thinking about. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting. I yep. don't know that I have a specific point. I was just... No, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a very important point. How, you know, we have these notions about how we're supposed to be, how the world's supposed to be, and we get wrapped around it mm -hmm. and get really angry or right. really lustful. Sure. And sure. then period of time goes by and it's like, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. What was that about? Yeah, and I was all worked up over Right. That. But the idea is to be able to see that mm -hmm. in, with a certain kind of detached, insightful awareness to the extent that we can still function but not get caught up in um, craving and clinging so much. The Buddha, you know, once he had his awakening experience, he didn't stop you know, operating, 
he functioned at a very high level. Um, created a community that was going on while there were wars going on around him. I mean, the the, the uh, political clan affiliation that he grew up in was overrun and destroyed by uh, a nearby uh, king who ended up being one of his disciples, according to the teachings. So it would take a lot of political astuteness to be able to Keep that keep Buddhism going in the context of that kind of situation. So he was no slouch. Mm-hmm. He was a good no debater. Doubt. Doubt. Yeah. But he still was absolutely sure that there's no such thing as an enduring autonomous self. Mm-hmm. And he knew how to work with that. And that's what this is all about as far as I'm concerned. Thanks. Other questions or comments? Yes, Leslie. Um, okay, so back in the section where you were talking about the distinction between what I'm guessing is the Hindu more um, dualistic system of thought, you said you were describing Dukkha as suffering from feeling separated from Atman. No, so, from Brahman, separated from Brahman. From Brahman. Brahman. Yeah, Atman. Atman is like you know. You imagine Brahman is this is the whole wholeness of the universe. Brahman. Yeah. Atman is the little segment that is separated out karmically, and that's our soul. Got it. Okay. So then you said in Buddhism, distinguishing differs from that Hindu approach you said no sense of self or there is no sense of self or connection with a higher self did I get that down right the whole notion of whether there's a higher self to be connected to is missing the point yeah from a Buddhist perspective said, but you know if you wanted to I talked about the interdependence of the cosmos right it's somehow or other because a star is in a certain galaxy, the world is the our world is the way it is. If the star wasn't that way, our world would be different. It would be probably not be very noticeable, and it's probably happening all the time. But that's what interdependence is, ultimately cosmologically. But what the Buddha was talking about is psychologically, right, um, experientially, and so uh, when we focus on there's God or Brahman or, you know, we talk about Allah as if Allah was a God, but, but uh, Muhammad was really adamant about that. No, Allah was uh, not a God. Allah was uh, openness to the universe, a lawful openness to the universe, like the Tao. And so uh, I think when we're talking about non-self from a Buddhist perspective. We're talking about the inherent unity or um, probably probably the right word. It's really hard to talk about. Well, interconnectedness, right? Interconnectedness would work. Um, Yeah. You know, mutuality. Yeah. Um, so that's the difference. Yeah. Okay. Good. Now, given that, then you said there is no enduring self, and when we don't get that, we suffer. When now, we don't get, we don't get what? The endure that there is no enduring self. Right. That's kind of a fundamental not getting. Yeah. But basically, so, what I was, we suffer because the mind has created some kind of idealized outcome. How I sh- who I should be, how I should be in the world. For example, my wife and I are doing this project, and I should be absolutely even-tempered and um, not the least bit clumsy or uncertain because I have a plan. And if you just do it my way, Paula, everything would be fine, right? So... That, that's unreasonable. 
and that causes suffering because Paula's got her own agenda running and quite often she's she understands it better than I do. So um, that kind of distress and confusion. The distress is the emotional part that comes with craving. I didn't make that clear. Distress is the emotional uh, component of craving. You can either be distressed because you want something pleasurable and you don't have it, or you can be distressed because you have, you're experiencing something unpleasant and you can't get rid of it. The confusion is what I was alluding to when I said, you know, Paula, if you just do it my way, everything would be fine. That's not about actually getting the job done. It's about me being right. right? You, you see the difference in terms of ego well, gratification? Yeah, well, I do see that. Um, I, as I said, uh, as I said in our meeting the other day, I'm still struggling with this concept of, of no cell. And uh, you know, I, I guess I was just intrigued with the language you had used about what was the cause of suffering. Because it, in so many other traditions, the suffering, that the ultimate existential suffering that human beings have is said to be the result of not understanding who you really are. And that no. who you really are is connected with that Brahman with, or with God, or with God, God or whatever, or right? Or, or but whatever. see, what what that does is when you say there's a God, it cuts a part out of the totality of the universe, the interdependence. It says there's one little chunk of it that is God, and everything else is part of that. But what Buddhism is pointing to is the universality of it. This is what non-duality is about. Non-duality is you know, and, and once again, we're talking about psychology here. We're not talking about physics. That psychologically, non-duality basically is a clear understanding that the experience of a self is something that is a phenomenon of nature. It's not inherently real. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's helpful. That, that, so, would you... Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Would you say... Or do, do do people say then that insight meditation practice is a non-dual practice? It's a practice that works with duality to realize non-duality. Okay, because I I've heard um, you may know the uh, the uh, podcaster Sam Harris who teaches Advaita. Um, yeah, Advaita Vedanta is is a, is a, a focusing on non-duality. That's a non-dual, and I've heard him make reference to, because he and Joseph Goldstein spar with each other a lot, and he he says when he refers to insight meditation, he refers to it as a dualistic uh, system. Yes, it starts out being dualistic. You know who who says that? Harris or or uh, Sam Harris. Sam Harris. Well, he's right. It's okay. a dualistic system that's moving toward non-dual non-dualistic realization. Okay. Oh, that's probably why he and Joseph Goldstein like each other so much. I guess I don't know. Yeah. I'm not familiar with their dialogue. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. So. Uh, we're at the end of our time tonight. Uh, what I want to talk about at our next meeting, the, the topic is going to be what is secular Buddhism? And I think that that's something that's important for us to think about and understand. Because what we're practicing, what I'm practicing, and what I'm advocating is a contemporary form, which is what secular means, that of, of a practice that the Buddha started out in a secular way that became a religion. And part of that involves 
um, relying on neuroscience and so forth and so on to um, validate or invalidate what the teachings are. The Dalai Lama said that if science disproves part of the Buddhist doctrine, then I'm going to trust science. And I, I, I very much respect that. That, that. That's a man of integrity. So, uh, that will be the topic next week is uh, uh, secular Buddhism. So, is our custom at the end of each meeting to sit for a moment. So, let's do that. Thank you for your practice. I wish you well.